You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 170 of the Common Descent Podcast. This episode, we are discussing milk. Milk, a very familiar topic. I'm a big fan of milk. I I go through a a gallon fairly regularly. (laughs) I am not a big fan of milk, but I (laughs) used to be a long, long time ago. So milk, we will be discussing the concept of mammary glands, milk, how it evolved, who produces it, and what what is its role in the animals that produce and drink this very specific nutritional substance. And we will be discussing this topic because it was requested quite a bit, uh, either for milk, lactation, mammary glands, or nipples. And our requests come from Diana, Jackie, The Load, Celeste, Firefly, Super, Milo the Biohazard, and Manwalker. Thank you, everybody, for requesting. Uh, this is a popular topic. Yeah, it it was a lot of fun to research because this is a very unusual and, and oftentimes specific concept in nature and among animals. So it, there's actually quite a bit of details to go over. So I had lots of fun going through all those. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, we will not be just discussing mammals. No, there are other things that produce milk-esque things. Now, before we get into that main topic, some brief announcements before we then get into our first section, which is the news. As always, our first announcement is that we have a Patreon. We sure do. Our patrons help fund the podcast top to bottom. Their support keeps us running. And if you sign up on our Patreon, you get extra goodies, extra audio, extra contact with us, you know, live chats and things like that, extra benefits at higher levels, extra like goodies, uh, extra gifts and stuff. But at certain levels, you get your name shouted out. And so this episode, we would like to welcome our new patrons, Miranda, James, Rocky, Amy, Ryan, Rachel W., Rachel C., and Sean. Wow, thank you everybody for joining our Patreon and supporting us. Yeah, this it's it's been a very inspiring recent few announcements because we've been getting lots of patrons. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and a lot of those patrons we know are joining us particularly in amidst the excitement of Croc and Snake Month. Yes, because we are still in Snake Month. That's true. When this episode comes out, there will be, by the time when this episode comes out, there will be about a week left Mm -hmm. in this year's Snake Month, which means that most of the special Snake Month stuff will be behind us. Our Snake Stuff bonus episode, our Sea Snakes main episode. But within that last week, people can still join the Snake Stuff channel on our Discord that is only open in July. And people will still be able to sign up for the Snakes and Crocs tier on our Patreon, which is only available until the end of July to sign up. And as we have been saying, subscriptions we get at that level during this month 
will contribute to charitable donations we will be making at the end of the summer towards snake and croc conservation research. So a huge thanks to everyone who has signed up at that tier so far, and a huge preemptive thanks for all the rest who will get in just under the wire at the end of the month. Yes, it's it's been a very productive and successful croc and snake months, and so thank you all so much. And speaking of supporting and getting extra ton- content and whatnot, we have other ways that you can join in on the podcast. We have our Discord. We have all our social media. We also have a Zazzle merch store where you can get Common Descent merch. So check that out in the links. And we are an Audible affiliate. We are part of the affiliates program. So there is a link down in the description that if you click on it, you can get a month's free trial with Audible and support us through that link. So Check all that out down below. Yeah, go find the best croc and snake content on Audible. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) And speaking of bonus content, if you want to hear more from us, we have been guests on a bunch of podcasts recently. Yeah, we've been busy. We have shown up as guests on Little Curiosities with Kendall Long and Snake Talk. David showed up there with Chris Jenkins. And I just recently recorded an episode with Sprites of Life with Lucas and friends about Pikmin that should be coming out soon. Very exciting. Yeah, if, th- if that's out by the time this episode comes out, a link will be in the episode description. If not, it'll be in the next one. Absolutely. So check those out. The, the, I had tons of fun on both Sprites of Life and Little Curiosities. Yeah, and I had a great time on Snake Talk as well. And with that, we can wrap up the announcements and move on to our first section, which is the news. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent research from the world of paleontology, earth sciences, evolution, and share them all so that we can all stay up to date with what's happening in the scientific world. David, what's the news? I'm going to start us off strong with some news about Anomalocaris. Excellent. Yes, and it and it and it's such cool news. This is news specifically. This is research investigating what Anomalocaris was eating. Mm-hmm. Anomalocaris, of course, will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. This is the famous massive predator of the Cambrian. Uh, Will, please describe what Anomalocaris looks like. <laughs> Anomalocaris looks kind of kind of lobstery. It's got the long, flexible body thing going with it, but. Instead of having the fins underneath, it has them down the side like a bunch of little wings. And then up front, two insect-looking eyes, but on stalks, like on little short stalks. And then two mouthpieces that curve down like a couple of bananas with spikes coming off the underside of the bananas. Yes, a very distinctive, very unique group of animals that are famous for being the largest predators that were around in their time period. Mm -hmm. But exactly what they were predating is the subject of this research. This research was published by Russell Bicknell et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And in the blog post that goes with this episode, we will link to an article uh, from the Natural History Museum Science News section by Josh Davis. Anomalocaris canadensis, uh, known to its friends as Anomalocaris, as I said, famous from the Cambrian period, so we're talking a 500 plus million years ago. 
Anomalocaris belongs to a group of invertebrates called radiodonts, so it's got some cousins. And, as I mentioned, Anomalocaris is huge, growing to impressive sizes of 60 centimeters, or (laughs) two feet, which, like we said, at that time, largest predator that we know of. This was an apex predator. Yeah, because that's one of those things, as we've mentioned before, of that it's completely relative. And if everyone else is, you know, less than a foot, typically, then you are now great white shark sized. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the the 60 centimeter long Anomalocaris cast an ominous shadow over the Cambrian uh, seafloor. And indeed, Anomalocaris is often interpreted and sometimes depicted as feeding on prey on the ocean floor, mm-hmm. especially trilobites. So trilobites, uh, who we've talked about before, episode 82, these are basically the super common bugs of the Paleozoic, the sea bugs. They have hard, segmented bodies. The evidence for Anomalocaris feeding, potentially eating trilobites, comes, number one, because it's big and it lived in the same place as them and it was a predator. Also, there are trilobites from this time period with injuries to their exoskeleton, damage that is potentially caused by a predator. And there are some coprolites, fossilized poops, from this time period with bits of trilobite exoskeleton in them. So someone was eating trilobites. Someone was eating trilobites, and the big predator around, Anomalocaris, is often the one to whom the fingers point. (laughs) However, there has been debate over the years about whether or not it would have eaten hard-bodied prey, especially the question of whether or not its mouthparts and those appendages up front, which seem to be good for grasping, whether or not those actually could deal with hard prey. There are some arthropods today that do that, but not all of them do. Yeah, and that's something I always used to wonder when I was younger and saw pictures, because there there are these, like, spiny spikes on the underside of those mouthparts, uh, those mm-hmm. appendages, and they always looked kind of delicate to me. And so I couldn't, as a kid, picture how they'd be cracking open shells, but just, you know, uh, uh, was like, all right, but I don't study this thing, so I don't know. And Right, right. <laughs> So it, it, it was when I saw this news come up, I was like, all right, cool. That's a question I've always had. And, and it's cool that it's being looked into. Yes. So in this study, the researchers analyzed those appendages, those what you, you call them, the bananas, these yes. flexible. Uh, they look like shrimp. Each one of them looks like its own little shrimp, which, in fact, is where the name Anomalocaris comes from. Mm-hmm. These researchers analyze those appendages based on specimens from the Burgess Shale, famous Cambrian fossil site, episode 89. They created 3D digital models of the appendages and then ran a bunch of biomechanical tests to test for things like range of motion, stress and strain, uh, hydrodynamicity, how well they moved in the water. Oh, yeah. And found a bunch of interesting physics answers to How did these things function? Most notably, what they found is that the arms appear to be, indeed, probably good for grabbing food. But those spines that you're mentioning, according to their analysis, are in fact very fragile. Yeah. And therefore likely to break against something hard, 
which suggests that maybe they weren't particularly good for crunching hard-bodied prey. Which, yeah, that, which is interesting because we, we often think of the biggest predators, you know, being able to take down the most common prey and everything, but maybe this was a, a situation where the, the common trial bites were actually had a very good defense against it. Yeah, so this might suggest that they were eating softer things, right? They, you know, other invertebrates, things like, you know, squid-type things or soft fish-type things. I say type things because those things weren't around yet, yes, but yes. other soft invertebrates floating in the water. And indeed, the analysis also found that based on the shape of those appendages, they concluded that the most efficient way for them to be able to move through the water would be to hold the appendages outstretched while they swam, mm. which is a little different from that sort of like elephant trunk at rest posture kind of uh, underneath the, the head. And this, the authors suggest, it seems to be better for swimming in open water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is also consistent with other research that has looked at the shape of the body, the eyes, that suggests that this may have been something that swam around in higher parts of the water column where it was nice and well-lit, hunting soft-bodied prey swimming around instead of trawling the, the sea floor for trilobites and stuff. Yeah, so instead of digging up stuff in the, the sandy, silty bottom, it might have been plucking things out of the water. Yes. Uh, and there are, the authors noted, other radiodons, so relatives of Anomalocaris, that uh, have some evidence to suggest they might have been eating harder prey. So there may have been different dietary strategies among different members of this group. Anomalocaris, the biggest one, might have been a specialist on softer things. Interesting. And yeah, it, it feels like it very much made sense when we looked at there's the biggest predator and here's one of the most common, you know, p potential prey items. It absolutely makes mm -hmm. sense to go, OK, well, were you two interacting? But it is also a very interesting concept that the largest predator might have actually been a, a specialist and not a everyone's on the menu. Yes. One of the articles that I saw going around about this was using the headline uh, Anomalocaris might have been a wimp, which I think is uncalled for. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's no. not the article we'll be linking to. <laughs> it's it's like uh, only a wimp if you're a trilobite who's who's talking smack down on right. the sea floor. But if you're a little <laughs> squishy person swimming around. <laughs> you're in trouble. Now, this, of course, the article does address the lingering question, which is who was eating all those trilobites? Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, there's evidence for it. And the author that is cited in the article to answer this question suggests probably other trilobites. Mm. Uh, there is evidence in the fossil record for trilobites potentially eating other trilobites. So it could be that the culprit, uh, in fact, is a big trilobite instead of a big Anomalocaris. <laughs> Which now I'm picturing Anomalocaris gliding gracefully up in the water as below him it's just trilobite on trilobite violence and just <laughs> it's just no oh no i'm gonna stay up here and eat my delicate soft foods yes <laughs> very cool well my next news my first news actually leads perfectly into that because it is about something that was likely crunching on tough food oh and is a new species of alligator from thailand 
Oh, how dare you bring a crocodilian's news to this podcast during Snake Month? It's No, I just, you know, I thought it fit with Anomala Chorus. You know, there wasn't anything else that I could uh-huh. find synergy with. Sure, sure. Yeah, what better episode than the milk episode <laughs> to bring in a crocs news? <laughs> this is research by Gustavo Barlam et al. in uh, Nature's Scientific Reports. And the article is by Said Agard in Interesting Engineering. So this is a new fossil alligator and was discovered in Thailand. It is estimated to be younger than 230,000 years old. To figure out what its relation is to the Chinese alligator, alligator sinensis, which is the only alligator and alligatoroid found outside of the New World, because the American alligator, alligator mississippiensis, and all the caimans are in the Americas. The Chinese alligator is the only one remaining outside of that range. And there's been quite a bit of questions as to what its evolutionary story is, as to whether or not it is a remaining member there that just persisted, uh, whether or not basically it's an unbranching evolutionary lineage from back when alligators were more widespread and it's just remained there or whether or not it is a member of divergent species that were also in that area and it's just the surviving member from that right was there just a whole group of different alligator species all over the place and there's just the one remaining or was it always kind of one weird branch out there exactly and alligator remains from asia are not uh, robust that that fossil record is fairly sparse so there's still been a mm. lot of mystery around the evolutionary history of the chinese alligator so they analyzed this specimen they compared it with 19 other fossil alligator specimens from four different species as well as the chinese and american alligator and the spectacled caiman and came up with how it fit into all those species or you know compared to them They noted some very unique features of the skull. It has a broad and short snout with a very tall skull. So much more, Hmm. you know, uh, how do I want to say this? Much more dog-faced almost than your typical flat, long-faced alligators and crocs. It also had reduced tooth sockets that were expanded in certain areas and nostrils that were not at the tip of the snout. Oh, weird. So yeah, a very interestingly shaped alligator and warrants a new species so this one has been named alligator monensis from the nearby mun river where it was discovered that's cool they did find similarities between monensis and the chinese alligator which suggests they do have a close relationship possibly sharing a common ancestor between the two of them that if if that's the case the ancestor likely would have evolved in the lowlands of the Yangshi Shi and Mekong Chao Fraya river systems. So the there there could be a relation there. It also does imply that if they are related, that indeed there was branching to this lineage and not just the singular Chinese alligator. Yeah, that there were a bunch of gator cousins of each other in that region. Yep. They also suspected that this likely syncs up with the uplifting of the Tibet, the Tibetan plateau that would have split up populations and allowed for these to evolve new species and get these different morphotypes. Oh, cool. As far as the 
tooth sockets go, they noted these because even though they were shallow, there was a few large ones at the back of the mouth that suggested large, likely crushing teeth. So that's a feature oh, we yeah, typically... yeah, which we've, we've talked about that alligators today do that. Yes, but these are even more notable than today's alligators. Like these were, they sounded like they were very, very enlarged, exaggerated compared to today's crocs, uh, including alligators. Not for crunching trilobites. Yeah, yeah. No, not trilobites, but probably snails and stuff like that. Yeah, turtles. Yeah, which is consistent with the ancestral condition of alligatorines, which had, you know, more often crushing teeth. And today's species have moved away from that so this this one might have returned to the ancestral condition if it hadn't retained it you know if it was indeed a branch off of the lineage that led to chinese alligators it could have been that this one returned to that crushing bite and they also made notes that previously that crushing bite was considered to be a specialization in alligatorines that it was something that resulted from a more specialized and narrowed diet and then was lost in today's alligators, which became more generalists. But these researchers looking at this alligator argue that it doesn't actually seem, there's no real solid evidence for it, it having to be a specialized lifestyle, and that it also lends itself to opportunistic feedings as well, so that this alligator's helping and adding in information to in, reinterpret not only Chinese alligator evolution, but also the ancestral condition to alligators. That's very cool. It's also very cool to imagine a time in the past where this region of South Asia or Southeast Asia would have been home to a variety of gators, mm -hmm. much like how right South and Central America today are home to a variety of caimans. Yes. That's pretty cool to think about. And boy, would I have loved to see this, this tall, snouted, snub-nosed alligator running around. Yeah, just scooping up snails and turtles and stuff. Crunch, 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 crunch. <laughs> very cool find even for snake month uh it's not so bad not so bad well speaking of reptiles from that general part of the world i've got a news about growth and development in marine reptiles from the triassic of china cool in particular the identification of puberty in early reptiles which is a very cool find. Oh, and awkward. <laughs> An awkward, gangly reptile. <laughs> this is research by Chiang Li et al. in Current Biology, and we will link to an article in Interesting Engineering by Mragakshi Dixit. The reptile in question is Caechosaurus. This is a member of a group called Pachypleurosaurs, which were marine reptiles of the Triassic, not Quite plesiosaurs, not ichthyosaurs, a whole a, a different group of marine reptiles. These fossils being examined here are from the Middle Triassic of China, around 240 million years old. This group of animals is known. Caechosaurus is pretty famous because there are lots of specimens of all different ages that have been described. They are known to be live-bearing, so they gave live birth, uh, like a lot of marine reptiles did. And they are one of the few examples of fossil animals that we have evidence of sexual dimorphism. Oh. Different shape between males and females. Males are bigger. Yeah. Uh, so like a lot of animals that we think of, especially mammals, for example, today, males were just bigger and, and beefier 
than the females were. This research looks at a bunch of different specimens, specifically cutting through the arm bones, or arm and leg bones, to look at the growth patterns in the bone. This is a histological study looking for signals of not only how they grew and developed over their life, but specifically signs of sexual maturity. What right. happened in the bone as they reached uh, sexual maturity during their lifespan? Which feels like an especially uh, useful and important question when we have a species where we also can determine sexual dimorphism. So, like, it's not only is that an interesting question to ask for any you know group of animals, but here, what are you doing to reach sexual maturity since we also know you are different as you reach maturity? Yes, absolutely. They examined samples from 18 Cachosaurus fossils of varying ages. And they were able to classify them into four life stages. The life stages were fetus, juvenile, puberty, and adult. (laughs) They identified signs of rapid growth leading up to puberty. And that this puberty, so puberty uh, is the onset of sexual maturity. We think of it, of course, as, you know, our awkward teenage years. But it's when our bodies are sort of taking on the characteristics that are common in adult humans. Same thing happens to animals all across the board. These appear to have reached sexual maturity around one year old. And when they reach this life stage, differences begin to appear in males and females, which were notable in the fossil. Cool. Specifically, they noted them in the humerus. So this is the upper arm bone. In young Cachosaurus, the humerus is round in cross-section. So it's shaped like a sausage. It's it's a round bone. At puberty, female individuals keep that same general shape, whereas the males, the humerus grows relatively larger with more extensive muscle attachment, and the cross-section changes to a more triangular shape. Interesting. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the males also grow to larger sizes. So they were able to find where those changes start to diverge, where the male and female anatomy starts to differentiate at this life stage, which is sexual maturity. They suggested that the difference in the bone shape, where the females retaining that round shape of the humerus and the males taking on that more triangular with more muscle attachment, seems to be caused by a difference in the pattern of how the bone is growing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that bone starts to deposit more bone in a different pattern than than before. And this is likely triggered by hormones. Like it is, as we see in lots of animals, those changes are hormone-induced. So this is, according to these authors, the first time we've been able to point at and say, there it is, puberty, in a fossil reptile. Very cool. Like, not only to be able to note it, but to be able to see the differences between the two portions of the population. That is fascinating. They also make the note that, like in, in any animal species with sexual dimorphism, the differences are likely due to different survival strategies Mm -hmm. that once you reach adulthood, once they reach sexual maturity, males and females are acting differently. In this case, larger body size and more robust, more muscly limbs is an extremely familiar set 
uh, features that suggest that males were benefiting from being bigger and stronger, which could indicate that they were competing with each other, mm-hmm. uh, that they were fighting for territory or whatever uh, being a male Kechosaurus entailed. Yeah, because that's a very common occurrence and, and, and attribute of sexually dimorphic species regardless of where the sexual dimorphism falls, if one tends to be bigger and more robust, there's often some form of competition going on. You know, it may not be full-on fighting, it may be display, or it may be for territory and not over, you know, mates and whatnot, but very, very mm-hmm. commonly, if if the males or females of a species are just notably way bigger than the other that's usually because they're throwing that weight around somehow. Yes. So it could be that we're not only identifying the onset of maturity and what that looks like in these animals, but also hints at how they were living differently. Yeah, that is fantastic. It, it, it's so cool that we are getting such minute, detailed information about this extinct species, since a lot of times we, we can't determine some of these things, you know, like if we don't have yes. a good growth series, we can't determine stuff like life stages. If we don't have a big enough selection of specimens, we can't determine uh, sexual dimorphism or, you know, whether it does or doesn't exist in that species. So the fact that we are having enough to keep adding to the awesome things with this group is really cool. Yes, a very cool finding. Awesome. Well, my last bit of news is... A more conceptual bit of research that is looking at the Cambrian explosion and the uh, an event that is often compared to in a similar degree in the Ordovician and questioning whether or not they really were notable events in the fossil record or whether or not they are, were part of a larger trend. Oh, yeah. We talked about that. We did the uh, an episode about the Cambrian explosion way back in episode nine. And we mentioned in that discussion this question of how explosive was the Cambrian explosion. Yes, that this concept of tons of diver- uh, a huge influx in diversity of life and the appearance of most of our animal groups whether or not that was actually what happened or whether or not that was a byproduct of how we're interpreting the fossil record or the fossil record that was left. This research was looking into that to try to determine how valid is the Cambrian explosion. This research is by Thomas Servais et al. in Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, and Paleoecology, P3. And the article is by Amanda Haidt in Live Science. So, Cambrian explosion took place and typically is considered to have taken place between 540 and 520 million years ago in the Cambrian and was a moment where we see a huge increase in both the amount of fossils preserved and the diversity of fossils preserved. Just tons of new groups. We see the major origination of most of our lineages, of our phylums of animals that we have today and has been just noted as one of the most critical and and dynamic events in life's evolution on Earth. Similarly, there is an event called the Great Ordovician Biodiversification Event in the Ordovician about 470 to 455 million years ago, so not too long after the Cambrian explosion. That was another 
radiation event where we see a lot of new species and new forms and complexity of life increase during that time. Right. The sequel to the Cambrian explosion. Yes. Both focusing on marine invertebrates being the groups that we see do all this. The period between those two events, though, is fairly understudied and lacks a lot of the evidence for the flourishing biodiversity. So that's part of what has seemed to give the the emphasis to these two events that there doesn't seem to be the same degree between them. This research wanted to basically put that to the test of are these events really as significant? And so they did it by doing a review of biodiversity curves. So just measurements of biodiversity of marine organisms during that early Paleozoic time period that encompasses these two events. They used fossil databases, so databases where people input the info of fossils they found from differing sites all around the world. The two databases they mainly used was the Paleobiology database, the PBDB, and the Geobiodiversity database, the GBDB. Both of these collectively contain roughly 2 million entries and contain fossils found from some of the most famous Cambrian deposits like the Burgess Shale and the Chungjung fossil beds in China. They also include a number of the specimens from the Great Ordovician Biodification event as well, so gives them a good look, but also a spread of biodiversity curves from that early Paleozoic time. And what they found was that there were not significant indicators for two, in quotes, events. Hmm. What they found was a much stronger likelihood for a single, large-scale, long-term radiation of life during the early Paleozoic. Ah, so in between those two events, the same high degree of diversification was happening. Hmm. It was just a feature, potentially, of that stretch of 100 million years or so. Yes, and that they does seem to have been a gradual increase in biodiversity throughout the early Paleozoic from 540 to 250 million years ago. Interesting. That likely had already started in the Precambrian, so that this was a trend Mm -hmm. that started before the Cambrian, it seems, and then just biodiversity continued to increase throughout that time, including the time periods that those two events were supposed to have happened during. They did not note any major spikes or visible evidence of these events. As they said, no abrupt explosion and no significant event were noted. They couldn't see anything that really backed up that these things were notable spikes unlike the rest of that time. Yeah. They said this could be that those things were regional, you know, so that maybe in that area Mm -hmm. it was particularly crazy, but globally not much so or that it might be those groups that were preserved in those areas had major radiations but that they were not reflective of the global trend at that time right we may have found a particular pockets where there was a lot of diversification but it was part of an overall trend not everything at once was happening at the same time yes exactly and they do know that these data sets are incomplete. You know, there are some areas that are not preserved and do not are not represented as much in these databases. They mostly cover Europe and North America and China between the two. Sure. And that the areas not covered in there are very understudied. And so, right, so- we could be getting regional biases 
in our interpretations of the biodiversity uh, uh, trends during this time. Right. Then we may only be looking at part of the picture. Yes. You know, of course, there's always the issue of we are only really getting the story from the species that preserved well in those habitats yep. during that time, which we talked about in the Cambrian Explosion episode that we may be getting a false uh, message just because we're not getting all the fossils. And so we're seeing a different story than what actually happened. Yep. And that right now they were stating that a truly global understanding of the biodiversity estimates and trends of marine organisms during the early Paleozoic is not possible and, and is currently still an elusive thing to actually be able to predict. So that we can't look at those sites that encompass the Cambrian explosion and say this is what was happening all around the world because we don't actually have a good grasp of the global events during that time. Right. It's really interesting looking at the history of our understanding of the Cambrian explosion that way you know early on it, it earned that name because the understanding of the fossil record at that time showed, yeah, this is where all of these major groups of animal life seem to become hyper diverse. And then as we looked more into it, we started to look at, oh, okay, this actually seems to happen over the course of 15, 20 million years. Mm -hmm. And then it was, oh, also there's the Ediacaran biota, episode 31, which is a diversification of life earlier than that. And also there's this Great Ordovician biodiversification event, which we haven't done an episode about, although we did talk about it a bunch with Dr. Alicia Stagall in our Spotlight series. Yes, indeed. Which is a diversification uh, seemingly event after that. So this discussion, I'm sure that this news is going around uh, the internet with all sorts of headlines talking about how we're overturning the Cambrian explosion and, oh, this is, yes. this is such a big deal. And it is a big deal, but this is absolutely part of this years, decades long ongoing discussion about how isolated, how widespread, how sudden, how big a deal was this Cambrian explosion that we so often talk about. Yeah, there have been people criticizing the overemphasis on the explosion part of this you know, event and this concept for decades and decades of people saying, well, mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't as, you know, distinct an event as we typically interpret it as. Maybe this is just when we are getting the best record of it. You know, maybe they weren't you know, hard shelled before, but the, it was happening beforehand. You know, they note that many of the published studies on diversification and, and taxonomic richness, in their opinion, can't be regularly disentangled from potential biases, uh, noting things like the the fame of these two events likely is causing a lot of over-focus on those time periods, but not the surrounding time periods. Right. That everyone wants to study the Cambrian explosion or the Gobi. Yes. But the, the common perception that nothing interesting happened in between might be leading to no one studying the time in between. Exactly. So they, they are, in this study, really emphasizing that according to their review, it does not show strong evidence for notable global events during these times. And that a lot of their, a lot of the studies that they've looked over seem to really emphasize that there is a strong biases toward these events in research on them. They made the push to kind of 
suggest we move away from using the terms explosion and event, and that if we do use these terms still, that they should be more specifically referring to the first appearance of all the animal phyla, but not the source of all the diversification. So that specific aspect of that point in the early Cambrian and in the Ordovician being a term for the number of radiations we see in those fossil sites, but not, once again, a global definition for what was happening and the only time it was happening. You know, that we might want to yeah. step away from you overusing these terms to, deci- to describe those periods. That is a very, it's a very interesting discussion mm-hmm. to, to watch happen in, in scientific literature over time. Yeah, I'll be very interested to see if there are responses to this review on either side. Oh, I'm sure. Well, we haven't done an episode on the Great Ordovician Biodiversification Event. Uh, put in your request now for an episode on the Great Ordovician <laughs> Biodiversification Event. And maybe by the time we do, uh, we'll have a whole different angle on this uh, topic to talk about. Right? It is an <laughs> ongoing process. But for us, we're done talking about it. That's it. I'm, I'm and, over yep. it. Nope. Now, that's as much as we're going to discuss it. Because we are now done with the news, and we can move on to our main discussion on milk and talk about what is milk, particularly the milk we think of, mammalian milk. What is it, and what does it do, and how does it differ across mammalia? Stay tuned after the break. Get your glasses ready. (laughs) Cookies. Get cookies and glasses of milk ready. Milk is the nutritious substance produced by the parents of mammals and given to their young to nourish them after they're born. The end. That's that's basically it. This is a mammal feature, and not just a mammal feature, but arguably the mammal feature. Where the word mammal yes. is related to this specific thing. It comes from mammae, which is for mammary glands. That's the glands that produce milk. We call this production of milk or secretion of milk, which you're going to have to get used to that term because we're going to talk about secretion, lots of secretion <laughs> discussion during this episode because that's what producing milk is. is it's it's a, like like producing sweat it's or, a secretion. or any sort of fluid <laughs> mm-hmm. release. It's a secretion. It is secreted by mammary glands. We call this process lactation. So lactation is a mammal trait. It's defined the group mammalia since 1758. <laughs> like it's... It's what makes us mammals more than any other thing we look at to determine if something's a mammal. Most typically, it is the females in mammals that produce milk, and it comes from these mammary glands, specialized, what are called accessory glands, that produce the milk mixture. Milk is a multi-part fluid. It is not just one single ingredient. It has a ton of stuff in it that do a bunch of different things. Right. Like, to make an analogy related to the theme of the month, snake venom. Yes. <laughs> That's the last comparison that I'll be able to make, I think, between milk and snake venom. Yeah. I, I, the secretion that's made of lots of parts of uh, different things. The only other one I thought of <laughs> when we talked about it last time was that we do milk snakes. Oh, that uh, is true. To get their venom. That is true. We do call that milking <laughs> when we extract the venom from yep. snake for research and stuff. Yep. <laughs> But other than that, I don't have any other snake examples. I'll uh, come up with. I'll think of yeah, something. Yeah, uh, I, I'll, I'll. We'll see how well you do. So, milk. Its components are 
famously, you know, for nutrition, to feed the young. That's that's what we think of first, at least that's what I think of first when I think of milk, is that it is the main food source for the young right after they're born. And for many, it's all they will eat for the first portion of their life. Right. And like you said, this is across mammals. Yes. As we discussed a few episodes back, even monotremes, mm-hmm. the weird ones, produce milk to feed their young. Yeah, this is something all mammals do. All mammals nurse their young on their milk. The things milk is made up of include a number of actually very unique components to milk. Things only found in milk. One of these are called caseins. These are molecules found in milk that serve a major role in transporting amino acids to the young, as well as things like calcium and phosphorus. So a lot of really key nutrients and building blocks are sent with caseins. These are only found in milk as far as we know. And this is along with other milk proteins like beta-lactoglobulin and alpha-lactalbumin as well as the whey acidic protein. I did not find as many fun facts about those. Those are more specific, doing right. very... Those are some Those are some fun chemistry words yep. for you. We will discuss those <laughs> a little bit later. Uh, they will come up, but those are sure. there are a number of proteins, including caseins being the big player, that are pretty unique to mammal milk. Yeah, like, yeah. we don't find them basically anywhere else in nature. I think lactoglobulin is one of the enemies that Spider-Man faces in one of those alternate universes. (laughs) (laughs) The caseins also come in different varieties. You have AS1, AS2, beta, and K caseins. And as far as we can tell, all four are found in all mammal milk, even across different groups. Oh, that's interesting. So this is like a key component. Another famous, this is one that I've heard of uh, before, is the milk fat globule which is where the lipids, the uh, fat material that is transported in milk, which is important for, you know, energy and building up fat reserves. This varies tremendously across mammals. Uh, You can have less than a percent in the example that they gave is rhinos and like uh, uh, some other animals, and then up to like 60% of the milk components in seals. So it makes sense. You have very differing amounts of how much of this is included. Depending on how much fat you need uh, to beef up that baby. Exactly. The thing that makes these unique is the milk lipids, so the actual fat molecules, are packaged in a membrane-enclosed structure called the milk fat globule. So that encasement, that membrane, is unique to milk fats. Oh, interesting. That is a a special thing about them. Uh, They will often... Shorten this down to MFGs, because mm-hmm. uh, then they don't have so to... So you don't have to say milk fat yep. globule. So you don't have to stumble over it like I did in the outtakes. <laughs> and then the the next, like, big famous ingredient is sugar. Oh, sure. Sugar is big, big deal in milk. There are two main sugars that we find in mammal milks. Basically, all mammals have sugar in their milks. Uh, a couple of exceptions. The two main sugars are lactose or oligosaccharides. Lactose, though, is the one that... Most people are going to recognize. I've heard of that. Yep. Lactose is the main sugar found in most mammal milk. Right. It is the primary sugar, I should say. Yep. That's if you can't drink milk, there's a good cho- chance that lactose is the thing that's doing it bad for you. Absolutely. Uh, this is a disaccharide, so it's made out of two parts, glucose and galactose. Glucose being the main part that's going to give us the, the sugary benefits. This is so famous when it comes to milk that it is called milk sugar. Like, oh, sure. that, that it's its colloquial term is just milk sugar and is, once again, 
only known from mammal milk. Like, that's the only source in nature is mammalian milk, as well as the oligosaccharides seem to be that way too. So these sugars are unique to being produced by mammals. Many of these por- these parts of milk, it seems only mammalian mammary glands make them. Very cool. So it's a very uh, specialized secretion. Now, we do find differing levels of the different kinds of sugars. In eutherians, so these are going to be your placental mammals, you know, typically the ones giving live birth without a pouch, you're going to find that lactose is the main milk carbohydrate, you know, sugar, with smaller amounts of oligosaccharides in there. Monotremes, marsupials, and some carnivorans have it flipped. Okay. With oligosaccharides as the main sugar, and then lower amounts of lactose. And the carnivorans are specific ones. Bears, minks, and some pinnipeds, so seals and their cousins, have this flipped situation. So the composition of milk varies depending on what group of mammals you're talking about. Much like the fat content varies. All of these things can vary drastically across groups and between species. But they're all, it's made of the same basic components. Yes. Uh, the only group that is kind of an exception is a few marine mammals. The ones I saw cited were seals and sea lions. Some specific members seem to be basically devoid of sugar in their milk. Interesting. Which makes them weird for mammals. Yeah. And then there are other features that are not about nourishing the young, but equally critical. Immune factors. That was going to be my mm-hmm. guess. What are called immunoglobulins. We're going to make Will say the word globulin, globulin. a lot. Yeah. Well, I Immu- missed the first Immunoglobulin <laughs> is also a Spider-Man villain. Yes, yep. <laughs> it's like a white venom where it, it cures people. Yes, it's the immunoglobulin is an anti-hero. Yes. <laughs> These are cells and molecules important for the immune system, mm. for protecting from infections and promoting the health of the young because many newborn mammals have no immune system to speak of basically right or they can't yet put it into use so it hasn't activated you know they haven't gotten to that point so the milk provides that defense for them from the parent and then uh microbiomes Mm -hmm. is another thing we talked about this heavily in symbiosis that we are filled with bacteria and yes. microbes. We contain multitudes. Yes. That are just living in there. Some of them we're having to fight against. Others are critically important to our survival. Gut bacteria is one of those really important ones. And many infants are born basically without any gut bacteria and have to get it from their parents. They can get this in multiple ways through skin contact, the process of being born. Sure. They can get a lot of it. And through the milk, a lot of gut bi- microbes are transported and contained within mammalian milk. So milk is a concoction of all the ingredients that are needed to turn a small creature into a proper mammal. Yeah. But like you need whatever. You're a horse. You're a platypus. You're a little baby human. Here's a bunch of stuff you need so that you will form properly. Well, it's like if you, when you went to put gas in your car, it also checked your brakes and changed your oil. (laughs) Like this is doing a bunch of really critical survival jobs. And it's an interesting extension. We talked in episode 154 about live birth Mm -hmm. and about how there's all these systems. We touched on the fact that there's all these systems in place during various different animals, forms of pregnancy for providing important materials and ingredients and nutrition for the young. We also talked about it in the eggs episode. Yep. 
episode 92 about the various ways to nourish young, mammals use milk as the additional step. Say, we've got a placenta or whatever it is that the mammals are using during pregnancy to nourish the young, and then after the newborn is newborn, milk provides yet continued parental nutrition provided to that offspring. Absolutely. And not only does this provide continued nourishment, but mammal young are dependent. Like, this is utterly critical to their early life. They need a milk or milk equivalent source of nutrition to survive, to make it into later life stages. Yeah, much like the live birth discussion, this is another episode topic discussion that's going to be extremely familiar to a certain subset of our audience. Yep. Who aren't necessarily biologists, but who have a lot of firsthand experience. Yep. <laughs> yeah, milk, it, it, there's a reason that we humans treat it as such an important thing. Because, yeah, we're mammals. And Absolutely. that's what you need. And we see that it is extremely tied to the development of the young in the fact that the composition of the milk will often shift as the nursing period throughout the nursing period to match the needs of the developing young. You will often hear the terms used for these stages of colostrum for the early stage milk that's produced and mature milk for the milk that's produced later on or toward the end of nursing. Some basic trends, I'm sure there's a ton of variety between these stages with different groups of life, but generally we see that colostrum has high amounts of protein and the immune substances, so the building blocks and the things that are going to protect from infection, and then the mature milk is often much higher in the lipids, so much higher in the fat content, in addition to still providing a lot of protein. So that's what milk is composed of. Now, how do we get it to the baby? And each group has slightly different features to how they do that. There's a notable amount of diversity in lactation throughout the major groups of mammals. You have eutherians, placentals. You have metatherians, the marsupials, and prototherians, which is now kind of an outdated term, but the monotremes. Yep. Both eutherians and marsupials, so placentals and marsupials, which make up theria. Which is all but a handful of modern mammal species. Yep. Basically, all the mammals today have nipples or teats, which are the structure that the infant latches onto to nurse and get the milk. This is another trait unique to mammals. This is something that we only see in mammals. And though it is found in most mammals, the positioning and number can vary ridiculously. Sure can. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. If you ever worked on a farm, oh, yeah. you'll be familiar. Typically, they're found in pairs on the underside of the body along two lines that are sometimes called the milk lines. That they'll be found somewhere up or down on those lines in however many number that species has. Often the number is matching with how many young they're going to likely give birth to in a single pregnancy. So you have uh, ideally one teat per newborn. Yes. So that everybody gets milk. Yeah. So you have enough parking spaces (laughs) for, for everyone who's about to arrive. Very famously, as we are familiar with, many animals have just the pair, Mm -hmm. have just two. This still, though, can be found in varying positions on the body. Famously, with us primates, they are found on the chest, up toward the front of the body. This is also true in elephants. Mm -hmm. They are also found toward the front of the body. Toward the front legs. Mm -hmm. And elephants' cousins, the manatees, have them also close up to the front, but in the armpits. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. 
Others will have just the two, but at the opposite end, back toward the back legs. We see this in goat, sheep, horse, guinea pigs. Many of them have posteriorly positioned nipples, just a pair. Cows famously have them in this position, but four on the udder. Then you have things like cats and dogs, which have them spread across the underside. Yeah, from chest to belly. Yep, basically. In, in two rows. The entire under portion, two rows, they can have between eight to ten. This is also the same sort of pattern found in like mice and rats and pigs, though they can have differing numbers. Mice and rats can have 10 to 12. Pigs can have up to 18. Wow. So you can start getting really high numbers as you're getting larger and larger uh, litter sizes or, you know, groups of infants born at once. And those will be associated with the image that I'm sure many people have seen of a dog or a pig or something laying down with just a row Mm -hmm. of little puppies or piglets or whatever it is all suckling at the same time. That's precisely why they have it set up that way so that hopefully all their young can nurse at once. We see slightly different patterns in marsupials because many of them have pouches and their teats are inside the pouch. Yes, so that the newborn can nurse while also being in a protective little closet. Because marsupials give birth to what we placentals would consider underdeveloped young. Yeah, that's not done yet. Yes. When they're born, when they leave the womb, they are very small. They're very similar to what we would still consider a, a developing fetus in most mammals. And then they climb up into the pouch. Yeah, they go on a little journey up the, the furry body of the parent and into the pouch. In there, they will find the nipples where they then latch on, and they then stay latched. Mm -hmm. They latch on, the end of the nipple actually swells in their mouth, locking it to the infant's mouth, and this acts as kind of a pseudo-umbilical cord now to feed the young perpetually until they've reached full development to leave the pouch and come out as a functioning infant. As opposed to what we think of in placental mammals where it is something that the newborn young is coming back and forth. Yes, is choose, it is now feeding time. Yes, I'm hungry now, and so now it's time to nurse. This means that for marsupials, the number of teats in the pouch limit the number of young they can have. Yeah. You know, a placental could potentially have more young than they have teats because the young can take turns. But if you're latching on and not letting go, you can't take turns. Yeah. So this puts a hard limit on their litter size. Generally, they, there is a relationship in marsupials between body size and the number of teats found on the marsupial. Smaller species tend to have more. So things like bandicoots and fascogals. I might, I might not be pronouncing that one right. Let me know if I'm saying that one wrong. <laughs> they have about eight teats in total. Larger species like wombats and koalas may have only two and kangaroos often have four. Then you get some extreme examples like opossums, where the gray short-tailed opossum can have 13, and I found one listing of the southern red-sided opossum having 25 to 27. I don't appreciate the odd number. The odd number is, that's the only time I found in the entire looking this up of an odd number. I don't like that it's an odd number, but I'm not surprised that marsupials are the ones doing it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That is a lot. That also tracks with the image of a possum carrying around just, just a whole truckload of babies. Covered in babies. <laughs> yep. Yep. Like a mother scorpion. Yep. <laughs> we also will see specializations. Uh, very famously, aquatic mammals will have very specialized nipples for the fact that they are 
in the water. Sometimes this is just as simple as to be hydrodynamic. Uh, some seals and sea lions can actually retract the nipples when they're not nursing and swimming so that they are streamlined still. In cetaceans, so whales, dolphins, they have what's called the mammary slits, which are folds of skin to enclose the glands, maybe partially for a similar hydrodynamic solution, but also because their young have to feed underwater. Yep. They have to feed on a liquid in a liquid. Yep. And we actually aren't sure how they do that. We're not 100% sure how, like what the mechanism of actual nursing and suckling is that's happening with a young whale. It might be that the calves are forming a channel with their tongue Mm -hmm. to create the suction they need or to catch the released milk. It may be that those mammary slits actually have muscles to squeeze the milk into the young's mouth. Hmm. And so the young just lines up and then the milk is forcefully released instead of nursed out by the young like it is with many other mammals. Yeah, but some mechanism so that the milk doesn't get away. Yeah. That doesn't float away into the ocean. Like I saw one thing noting that you will see milk mixed with the water as they're nursing, so it's not a perfect seal. Yeah. Uh, well, but... they're, they're new. Yes. <laughs> they're new at it. They're not perfect at catching it. But like... <laughs> That is a an odd problem. Is how do you yeah. how do you drink something underwater? I had not yeah. thought about that. <laughs> that is a really interesting point. We then see an even more different set of circumstances with the monotremes, as we discussed recently in the monotremes yep. episode, episode one sixty six. They do not have nipples. They have milk patches, which are sections of their abdomen that have mammary glands set up in these sets of rows that make a patch. This can be 100 to 200 glands, which is notable because in many of the other examples, it's just one gland per nipple. One specialized, and I assume larger, Mm -hmm. gland for producing milk. So each nipple would have its own mammary gland. Here they have mammary glands, a different setup. These are associated with a dip in the skin and a hair follicle, which other mammary glands are not haired, These have a hair follicle and will actually be a specialized nursing hair, a milk hair that it's sometimes called. Hmm. And this setup makes up what's called a mammopliosebaceous unit, an MPSU, which we will be talking about. This will be on the quiz. Yes. (laughs) This is where the monotreme young, the puggles, suckle the milk off of those hairs and out of that hair. So the hair like channels the fluid. Yeah, it, it gives a place for it to get caught, it seems. And so they're not just licking it off the skin they are they are still suckling there's just no nipple for them to yeah. latch on to like we typically think of as you described back in the monotremes episode they're releasing milk much more like sweat yes like we might think of sweat just kind of coming out of the skin specific patches where the milk sort of is sweated out and that is an extremely apt comparison as i made the point in that episode because that is one of the most likely held hypotheses for how milk evolved from glands similar to sweat gland. So let's talk a bit about milk evolution. How did mammals get this extremely specialized mammal-specific secretion that is so critical to mammal survival? The discussion of the evolution of lactation has been around since Darwin. Because I'm sure. It's such an obvious feature of mammals It was one of the difficult things that he struggled to find a perfect answer to since it is just so specialized Mm. and unique. Many have hypothesized that it is likely connected with the evolution of parental care or at least the presence of 
parental care that caring for your their for your young is probably a, an important step before you start producing a specialized secretion to feed your young. Right. It's an important prerequisite that parents and young have to be in the same place. Yes, that you're that you stick around long enough to give them food. Yes. It is extremely complex. The genetics are complex and have suggest a very long evolutionary history. The fact that we find such strong similarities across every mammal group, whether they have nipples or not, suggests that this likely goes back to the origin and very likely before the origin of mammals. Mm-hmm. Back like to true mam- mammals. Yeah. Back to mammaliforms, maybe even further back. Those early synapses yep. Yep. from episode 47. The earliest mammals evolve somewhere between 240, 160 million years ago. So we could be looking at milk's origins in that time range or before it. Going back to the Jurassic or Triassic, depending on where its origins first came up. As for how it developed, there are a couple of major leading ideas for what steps and where the different parts of milk came from in mammals' evolutionary history. The mammary gland's origin is assumed to have come from just other glands in the skin. The Uh, fact that we secrete things from our skin and the the mammary gland is a specialized version of one of those. And we're not the only animals that do that. No. There are plenty of animals that have skin glands. And us, we keep talking about sweat Mm -hmm. because it is probably the most relatable and famous version of that. But yeah, having fluids come out of the skin is not by any means a unique thing to mammals. Yes. Very famously, amphibians produce all sorts of stuff from their skins. Yep. This likely started, you know, this... Many of these glands likely started when tetrapods first came on land and had to start dealing with dry air and more sun and new environments. Well, and fish can secrete things from their skin, too. So, yeah, that can go way back. And we see a bunch of features in skin secretions from certain groups that do have similarities to milk. You know, like they can do all sorts of stuff from mucus to facilitate gas exchange and keep them from drying out to toxins to protect they also produce a lot of antimicrobial uh, uh, peptides and materials that fight infections, mm-hmm. which could potentially be some of the origins for some of the proteins that also have strong immune system features and, and support antimicrobial processes in milk. Yeah, that ancestrally, these could have been proteins that were meant to sit on the skin and protect the adult that maybe got co-opted into this a strategy whereby the young are taking up that stuff off the skin. Precisely. This has led most, this is the by far the most common hypothesis for mammary gland evolution, I found, to say that the origin were apocrine glands. These are glands found in various parts of our body and mammal bodies, and they secrete different things depending on where they are. These can be helping produce wax in the ear. So earwax comes from these kinds of glands. These are sweat glands. So these kinds of glands serve multiple roles across the body. And it is thought that they likely resemble the ancestral form. That something very similar to them is where mammary glands started. This is due to the similarity of their structure and how they develop. Hmm. How we see each gland develop, we see similarities in mammary glands that resemble apocrine glands. Also, the process by which they both secrete whatever they're secreting is a similar chemical process. So they may be hyper-specialized sweat glands, effectively. Exactly. So when we say monotreme sweat milk, yeah, basically. They are kind of literally sweating milk. If this is accurate, yeah. 
And the fact that monotremes have a slightly different setup to their mammary glands is another potential support for this hypothesis. When we look in most mammals, African glands are not alone. They are set up alongside a sebaceous gland, which is oil. That's what adds oil to our skin and a hair follicle. So that's every sweat gland you have typically has an oil gland with it and a hair. We call these apopliosebaceous units. These are very similar mm -hmm. to the MPSUs, the units of mammary glands with monotremes, which have a mammary gland, a hair follicle, and a sebaceous gland. Yeah. So they have all the parts, but their apocrine gland has been replaced with a mammary gland. And so it is highly suggested that, that is highly suggestive of the fact that, yeah, that same setup just got reordered to be producing milk instead of sweat. Yeah. We will see in developing nipples of like marsupials that they start out with hairs that are then lost. Oh, interesting. So they start out with a sweat gland-like setup, but then become a more typical, you know, what we think of a typical mammary gland setup. Interesting. A similar origin has been suggested for the glands secreting the milk fat globules, uh, that they also might have come from less specialized lipid secreting gland, maybe another kind of apocrine gland. And so that is by far the, the, every paper I found would list this, and many of them would just say, and since they evolved from apocrine glands. Right, and, and therefore. Yep, like that is kind of the accepted origin for where mammary glands came from, is that they are just super, super special Sweat glands. Cool. I'm a, I am apologize to everyone who is unhappy <laughs> that I said that sentence. But there, well, that's it, what evolution suggests. Honestly, it's nice to have an answer. Mm -hmm. It's so often in discussions like these that we're like, well, it seems likely that, or there are a few different options, and here's the evidence. This is one where, and I'm not an expert, there may be more debate or discussion <laughs> than I know, but it's nice to have an example where it's like, yeah, we're pretty dang sure. The, the overlaps are so strong. This is it. There's also been research into where did the different parts of and roles of milk come from? Because that's the other question isn't just, okay, how do we get mammary glands? But why? Why did we start producing this? How did right. we get to the point of, I'm going to secrete this very special thing that's just yummy to, to my young. Right. It probably wasn't a bunch of early synapses just licking sweat off yeah. of their parents. <laughs> right. What's the deal? What were the steps? One of the big parts is caissons. So looking into their origins might help. As mentioned, there are multiple kinds and it seems all mammal milks have the four primary types indicating that that likely also goes back to the origin of mammalian milk, likely back to those pre-mammalian lineages. Caissons are members of a larger protein family. These are sometimes called the secretory calcium binding phosphoproteins, SCPPs. This will also be on the quiz. Yes. I want you all to remember every single one of these because I'm not going to. It's going to be a big old vocabulary word list <laughs> in the blog post. It's going to be one of those, you find them <laughs> yes. in the, the, we'll the have cross. A cross we'll yeah. have a word search. Yes. <laughs> Can you find secretory <laughs> sebaceous glands? <laughs> these serve roles in mineralization and regulation of calcium. So they are very important in things like tooth and skeletal production, especially in early vertebrate evolution of forming our bony skeleton. And so these go back before the split of mammals and sauropsids. So these go way, way back to early tetrapods. But when looking in sauropsids, so your reptile branch of everything, they did not find any genes for milk caissons. They did find two members of this SCPP group. Hmm. They found one that was 
O-D-A-M, which I'm not going to sound out. <laughs> Odom. Odom. Like Leslie Odom Jr. There we go. In the genome of a frog in genus Xenopus, and one that was F-D-C-S-P in the genome of a lizard, which was in Anolis. These have similarities. These genes have similarities to the alpha S and beta casins. I think I said AS earlier, alpha. Uh, It was hard to tell. So they may be derived from the Odom gene. K casins were similar to the FDCSP1, which also seems to have derived from Odom. So it may be that that Odom gene is the origination for all casins. And then certain of them ended up being an important part of milk. Yes. So it could be that these regulations for calcium Mm -hmm. are the origins for these casins. But this was an an interesting thing, and I'm sure that this is going to continue to be a trend as we talk about this. As we've mentioned with uh, snake venoms before, (laughs) that there has been lots of research into where did the toxins in snake venom come from? Why are you producing horrible, deadly stuff? in your altered salivary glands, and that those toxins are derived from proteins in the body that are doing important things like digestion and nerve regulation. It is actually extremely logical and intuitive to think that a bunch of proteins and things that are important for the development of a healthy body are already being produced in the body in some form or another, so that you have these proteins that are important for maintaining skeletal and bone, uh, tooth and bone structure, that those would be co-opted for a little juice to feed to offspring so that they can produce healthy bones. Yes, indeed. It makes a lot of sense. And this calcium connection might give us hints or at least an idea of the original purpose of these casein-related genes. Many have hypothesized that they may have been to regulate calcium delivery to the surface of eggs because based on genetic evidence it is very likely that the earliest amniotes or the earliest shelled egg producing animals had eggs with a fibrous calcium free shell Mm. you know so it wouldn't have been a hard chicken egg shell it would have been probably softer like we see in lots of reptiles and lacking a lot of the calcium that we attribute to eggshells nowadays. So maybe more like frog eggs kind or of. fish eggs. It's like, uh, like a frog egg, but with a shell, but right. much floppier, much more fibrous than the hard calcified. Sh- so a, or a there may not be a perfect equivalent nowadays yeah. to these early first shelled eggs. It is likely that if that is the case, these eggs would have needed care to maintain their homeostasis, you know, and, and maintain them, their integrity without drying out without, because you know, they no longer have, they don't yet have that protective, you know, complicated shell that we think of with today's eggs. So the adults may have been needing to provide moisture and even potentially calcium hmm. to the surface of the already laid eggs through some of these secretions. We actually see behavior like this in land breeding amphibians. So amphibians that raise their young and and give even birth to their young on land out of water have to keep those eggs from drying out. Uh, Some of this do this simply by like putting them in their mouth or something, Mm. but others will add moisture to the eggs from their skin secretions. Interesting. So they sweat all over the eggs. Yep. But it's special calcium sweat. It's special calcium sweat. (laughs) Now this could just be mainly for 
keeping them from drying out. It mm-hmm. might be adding some nutrition with calcium or even maybe direct nutrition to the embryo. So it could be layered purposes to it, but drying out would have been a major issue. And if they were indeed lacking calcium, that would answer why we might start seeing these calcium-related proteins becoming specialized in secretions of various glands. There is some evidence that seems that egg yolks started to reduce around 170 million years ago with the loss of something called the telogenins, which is a a precursor to the egg yolk found in most egg-laying animals, and that we do see in mammals a reduction in this based, I think, based on genetics mainly, indicating that potentially that nutrition of the yolk was maybe being replaced by another source. So this might give us an idea of what time period in mammal evolution we started to see the nutritional side of these secretions might have been stepping in. And then the only next step you'd need is that after they hatch, the young to keep feeding on those secretions Mm -hmm. for us now to be online to a very monotreme-like-esque form of nourishment for those young. And then the final big component is the milk sugars, which have been looked into. There's the two, once again, lactose and oligosaccharides. It's unsure which one is the original, like if one was the ancestral and then the other one came in. Based on which groups prioritize which sugar, it's likely that oligosaccharides were the original sugar and then became the secondary one to lactose in placental mammals that evolved later in mammalian evolution. But the fact that lactose is still found in all mammals still means it was likely there before the origination of mammal milk, but just was not the main sugar yet. If this is the case, it could be notable because oligosaccharides also have antimicrobial properties. Mm. They're not just sugars, they also serve a dual role, very notably in marsupials as part of the immune components of milk and as a sugar source. Whilst in most placental mammals, lactose focuses on the sugar job and oligosaccharides mainly serve an immunological role. This could suggest that the original purpose for milk might not have been nutrition, but protection. Yeah. And that then that sugar started to be used secondarily as a source of carbohydrates. Uh, I was wondering that at the top of this discussion, if if a certain function Mm -hmm. was the sort of first stage in milk and an immune function would make a whole lot of sense. Absolutely. So we can can picture through this an image potentially of the evolution being tetrapods come on land, start secreting stuff to protect themselves, start laying eggs on land that need extra protection either from drying out or from lack of calcium or from infection. And these secretions start to protect them from those issues. And then if nourishment gets added to that role of those secretions and the young start to feed on that secretion after they hatch, we now have all the pressures and things in place to start specializing those secretions to a nourishing purpose after birth. Yeah. And another thing that helps out with this, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, is that milk is not the only example of a substance being produced by the parent to nourish the young. So it's not a completely unprecedented thing for a newborn animal to develop the habit of feeding on a substance that is produced by a parent. There's obvious examples like, you know, we think of 
birds, yep. adult birds feeding young regurgitated food. But there's all sorts of examples that could be an accessory on that line of evolving this habit of feeding the young with something that comes out of the parent's yeah. body. Well, the amphibians keeping the eggs protected with their own skin secretions is already a very good example of I'm producing a substance mm-hmm. that's to keep my young alive. That act of producing, you know, secreting something for childcare is not actually ridiculous. It's just the steps to getting to how specialized mammalian milk is is where a lot of the questions lie. One of the last things is that we do have some evidence of when nursing started, because suckling actually requires some specific anatomical features. Hmm. The hyoid apparatus, which is a structure in your throat that affects a lot of the musculature of the throat and provides anchorage, and the shape of the hyoid can tell us a lot about what the throat of an animal was doing. We do have some fossil evidence as to when powered sucking, so suckling, Mm -hmm. could have been possible. I found one instance of a mammaliform from the Jurassic, the middle Jurassic of China, called Microdocodon gracilis, which was very small. They said its mass was like 5 to 9 grams, uh, which is much smaller than other docodontons, the group of mammals it's from, in the area it was found. It had fully erupted teeth, so it seemed like it was an adult, and a nearly intact hyoid with a shape very similar to modern mammals, suggesting that it would have at least been capable of right. suckling, and is notably different from cynodont hyoids, which have features suggesting a non-muscularized throat, more similar to what we see in reptiles where they aren't producing suction mm-hmm. with their mouth and throat. Which gives us an indication, at least, of when we could have seen mammal-like nursing. Yeah. We don't know for sure that that's what was happening with these mammaliforms, but it does give a time where it could be no earlier than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And presumably before that, it could have still started out as something a little less specialized. Yes. I'm, I'm picturing, like, early, early mammal relatives getting milk from a parent the way that a vampire bat yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> gets the blood out of a meal yeah. or just licking blah, at blah, the blah, time. Blah. Yep. Yeah, well, and that's like, we absolutely could have seen something more like a monitoring where you're just sweating the milk out. Yeah. But it's not likely before this that we would have been seeing nipples because you wouldn't and, have been able to suckle and latch Nursing on. like yeah. we see. Yeah. There is evidence from some of those early mammaliforms that they did have milk teeth, baby teeth, which suggests that they may have been feeding differently like we do early in life, which could be another bit of evidence suggesting they might have been already specializing in milk nourishment at the beginning of their life. Which brings me to the last thing I want to talk about in this section, which is milk drinking in general, because we humans drink milk, but we do it after we're babies. Yeah, which is is very easy to miss that that is a very strange thing to do. That is very weird like, as far as mammals go. Milk is madly, literally produced for young mammals. And most of the time, adult mammals can't drink milk. No. At least, or you can, I mean, obviously you could drink whatever you want. Yes. But your body can't actually process it. You lose that ability as you mature in most mammals yes so when you see those old cartoons of people feeding milk to their cats Mm -hmm. but not if it's an adult cat nope no you give that cat water yes (laughs) this is because lactose that major sugar 
needs a specific enzyme to break it into glucose and galactose. It needs lactase. As infants, mammals produce lactase. But once they stop nursing, once they have been weaned, they stop producing it. This is called lactase non-persistence, LNP. There's lots of those in yeah, this. A lot of acronyms. Oh, yeah. For most humans, this is also the case, and they would experience what we have now termed lactose intolerance yeah. if they drink milk. Most adult mammals, in fact, the almost entirety of adult mammals are lactose intolerant. Yes, and this this is a side effect of not being able to break down lactose and gives you gut pain because you're not able to digest this thing that you, right. you it's ingested. Like if, it's like if you tried to eat wood. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff wood is made of that your body's just not going to do a good job at. So you're going to have discomfort. You'll often have diarrhea because you need to pass all that stuff you couldn't digest. Yeah. This is another aspect of our discussion that will be very familiar yes. to a certain subset of our audience. Oh, yeah. It is mainly within European or populations with pastoralist ancestry. Groups of people that started processing milk started to develop lactose persistence. They continued to produce lactose into adulthood, mm -hmm. and that allowed them to drink milk as adults. Only about one-third of adult humans today in the world have this. Yes. So this is still not the norm. And this has been traced to specific mutations in human genetic evolution yes. that show where that little genetic twist happened that allowed us to continue producing lactase as adults. Tracking those genetic changes shows that it showed up somewhere within or around the last 10,000 years and then spread very quickly. Since then, it is the most strongly selected single gene trait in Europeans and some African groups that also developed it. Yeah, so this has evolved multiple times, yes, which is very cool. Notably, because you may be wondering, okay, but lots of other populations than those use milk. Yep. Not all dairy populations, you know, not dairying people who use milk have developed lactose persistence because things like cheese and yogurt that are processed milk have much less lactose mm. in them. So you can eat them without having lactase and have less issues while still getting a lot of the nutritional benefits. Yes. So processed milk can be consumed, but just raw straight out of whatever animal you're milking, milk, you need that lactase to be able to process it without pain. And this evolutionary quirk of our human history is what has allowed us to do the other thing that is a super weird thing for a species to do, which is not only drink milk as adults, but drink the milk of other species. Yep. But we, we specialize in drinking other species milk, which is a very strange feature of our of our species and culture. And may likely and is very likely why this persistence came about is when we started mm -hmm. domesticating other animals and went, well, you're producing milk and like, I got to do something with it. And that access to those other animals and access to their milk is likely where the origin of this came from. A lot of domestication picked up around 12,000 years ago, which is syncing up around when we start seeing lactose persistence showing up in the genetics. Mm -hmm. There is some archaeological evidence of milk lipids in pottery. Oh, cool. Yeah. Going back uh, 9,000 years, it sounds like. So ancient milk jugs. That does not necessarily mean that they had lactose persistence. You know, they may have been processing it into stuff, fermenting it into yogurt and stuff like that, butter fat. And one thing even noted that very likely it was not common if 
it had even showed up by then. But we had at least been using milk for sure 9,000 years ago. And then we do have direct evidence of milk consumption with the calculus, the mineralized tooth plaque on teeth going back to 5,000 years ago in Eurasian dental remains. So at least then we were definitely drinking milk. Yeah. This all makes me think of that there is this recurring joke, this very old recurring joke that starts with, who was the first person to look at a cow and decide to drink the stuff that comes out of the udders? And I've always thought to myself, well, it's pretty obvious that you could drink the stuff that comes out of the udders. Oh, yeah. But that's milk. Yes. We're all mammals. All mammals are producing milk. It is a very familiar thing, and it's a very intuitive thing to conclude. The weird part is that they decided to do it as adults. Yes. But then we went ahead and literally evolved a solution to that problem. Yep, yep. And it probably started with us processing the milk into stuff that was more digestible Mm -hmm. before that, but it still would have had some lactose in it. Yeah. And it still would have been present. And then as we became tolerant to it, well, now we can have it in whatever form we want. Selective pressure that allows that lactose Mm -hmm. tolerance persist so for all of our friends out there who are lactose intolerant take solace in knowing that you're the normal mammal oh yeah no no you're doing it the way (laughs) (laughs) for a hundred million years it's been done yep (laughs) us weirdos uh i will keep chugging milk so mammal milk incredibly specialized long evolutionary history with multi-purposes and ways of nourishing and protecting young As you mentioned, though, mammals are not the only one to have hit upon this survival mechanism of directly providing nutrients to their young, and many of them do it from their own bodies, very much like mammals do. After the break, we will go through some of these non-mammalian milk examples found elsewhere in nature. As you mentioned, many adult animals provide food, provide nourishment for their youngs. The simplest forms of these is parents just bringing food to the young. Directly, I caught this. Here you go. Many will catch and eat the food and then regurgitate it to the young. There are some situations that get a little closer to I am actually providing the nutrition from myself. Things like embryo nourishment. Many parents nourish the embryo while they are inside. And so that is a form of nourishment. Right, like with placentas Mm -hmm. or placenta-like structures. You also have things known as like trophic eggs, where many animals will will keep producing eggs for the developing young to then eat. Mm -hmm. Uh, This can happen inside the parent or after the young is born. You know, lots of amphibians will do that where they will have the tadpole, and then keep producing eggs into the pool the tadpole's in so they can eat those eggs. Lactation, though, is often considered the most specialized of these forms, where something specifically made to nourish the young is produced. The eggs are not a unique structure. Right. Milk had, though the only purpose of milk is for nourishing those young. Exactly. That is often used to signify the uniqueness of lactation. And there are numerous examples of this kind of nourishment in other animals. Not all are called milk, but they are very similar in many ways. And the term milk will often get used for some of these. 
And I never found anything that specified of like, well, true milk means mammal milk. A right. lot of them are like, here's the features of this group. So it's milk. Right. This is, by all mm -hmm. accounts, for all the features, it walks like milk and it talks yeah. like milk. It's doing the job of milk, so it's milk. So it seems very often the term milk is just used for a substance secreted specifically to nourish young. It's only milk if it comes from the milk region yeah, exactly. of France. Uh, which I was kind of surprised by because so often it'll be, like when we talked about horns, where it's like, well, true horns are bovids. Right. That everything else is horn-like. Right. Bovids have horns. But also, we just call them horns. But uh, we call a lot of things horns, but we will spit. I never found that here where it was like, true milk comes from mammaries. Yeah. It's milk is the term used for these these secretions across the board. Interesting. Not always. You know, some will get called milk, some won't. Uh, but a lot of times we have other animals that produce milk other than mammals. One of the first ones I found that's less milk-like, but definitely in the same category is mucus provisioning in fish. There are some fish that will, it seems, produce specific mucus for the young to eat off their bodies hmm. that it seems has nourishing prop properties. Fish milk. Yes. A lot of these examples are anecdotal and a lot of them are from uh, hobbyists keeping okay. the fish. So we don't have a lot of in-wild and rigorously documented examples to ensure that this is indeed nourishing the young or that there is something unique about this mucus for that role. But there are a number of situations noted in different fish, specifically cichlids, that seem to produce mucus for this purpose. Two examples I found was uh, one was a South American substrate brooding. So they're brood in the substrate they're living in, you know, where the habitat they're living. They put their eggs there and then the baby fish, the fry, seem to eat the mucus off the parent's body that was also noted in buccal brooding cichlids in Africa, which are mouth brooding. That they and hold on to the young in their mouth. Inside their mouth. And these produced mucus inside the mouth hmm. that the young seem to be benefiting from. Now, exactly what properties it's giving them and exactly how the young are taking the mucus isn't sure, especially with the mouth brooding fish where it's hard to observe because sure. it's inside a mouth. But there is some support that this mucus at least could be used this way. Basically, all fish produce mucus, at least all teliest fish, all of our bony fish produce mucus. So that is not unusual. It does do things like reduce the chances of infection in wounds on the skin. So it has that similar immunological role. It also is rich in proteins and lipids. So fats can be definitely provided this way if that is indeed what's happening. And they have noted that the composition of the mucus inside the mouth differs between breeding individuals and non-breeding individuals. So it does seem like maybe a special kind of mucus is being produced while breeding that might be specifically for the young. There might be other reasons it's different, Yeah. but there is a note there that that is breeding mucus. That is not the mucus you, pr you produced yesterday. Yeah. This is different. Very cool. So there is some potential evidence for this being a way to nurse the young. It is likely that this is not the main or only form of nourishment these young get. Uh, a lot of the mouth brooding fish will also eat food so the young can then feed on it in their mouth. But the mucus could maybe be to supplement this. It is also going to be in addition to yolks because these baby fish still have yolks that they will be feeding off of. So it's not... The young aren't as reliant on it as we typically think of like milk being, but 
it might be a similar thing. A more comparable example in fish is what's called uterine milk, milk produced from the walls of the uterus. This is found in a lot of elasmobranchs, so sharks and rays. Mainly it's known from rays, but there are a couple of sharks that it's been noted in. This group of fish give a variety of births from laying eggs to live birth. Even in the live-bearing species, they still will typically have a yolk sac phase, but they have a variety of ways of nourishing their young that are going to be born live. There are some sharks that have placenta with umbilical cords and all. A lot of them have oophagy, which is eating eggs. There's the famous adelphophagy, which is embryos eating embryos, that you have multiple young in the uterus and... There can be only one. And they can they will eat each other. And that's why a lot of them will have sectioned uteruses so that they have two left, <laughs> one for each room. And then histotrophy, which is providing nutrients. And this is typically done either with mucus or lipids. And the lipids produced from the uterus are what get called uterine milk. Hmm. This has some similarities to mammalian milk. One is that it does go through phases. It changes throughout the pregnancy of the species and the development of the young. Early development is going to mainly be egg yolk, and the young will still be able to take in uterine milk, but it seems like it'll mostly be through the gills, so just absorbing it. Later in development, the egg, egg yolk has been exhausted, it disappears, and then they will be mainly feeding on uterine milk and probably taking it in through the mouth, eating it. It's been noted that uterine milk consumption drastically increases the size and growth rate of the young. A lot of uterine milk producing species have faster gestation periods than others because their young are getting, it seems, nourished more effectively during their gestation, with some of them only lasting two to four months in certain rays. Uh, they did note that this isn't always the case. In big species, like the manta ray, which also produces uterine milk, it can still be up to 12 months. So that's not always the case, but it does have a, a benefit there. The uterine milk is rich in proteins and lipids. So once again, those key similar milk components are found here. And we also see those components shifting throughout the period. So very much like mammalian milk, here it is rich in proteins throughout, and the lipids change, increasing during the middle period of gestation and then reducing toward the end a bit, having kind of similar phases to the colostrum in mature milk. And as I said, this has been noted in rays mainly. Myliobatoid rays are the main group that this was known in, but it has also been seen in others, including maybe the great white shark, which was thought to be mainly an oophagus eating eggs species, but seems like they might actually be producing some uterine milk for their young. Hmm. So this is a widespread feature that is very milk-like. It's inside, so it's not being produced after they're born. Yeah. But it is a very milk-like substance to nourish their young. We also famously see this in Sicilians. Sicilians! Which we, we mentioned. mentioned this in episode 162, that they will secrete a fluid substance for their babies to eat, mm -hmm. in addition to also growing an extra layer of skin on yes. the outside of the parent's body for the babies to chow down on and get their nutrition. Which has also been cited as further potential support for early tetrapod skin secretions being the source for milk, because we see nutritious lipid-filled skin being produced in Sicilians, so there might be a common 
origin to the deep evolution of those features of your skin can actually be pretty good at being nutritious. <laughs> Sicilians will produce a nutritious fluid from their cloaca. They also will produce uterine milk inside the uterus for the young, it seems. I didn't find whether these are the same nutritious fluid. If it comes from the same source, I couldn't find anything that specified. Yeah, as far if I remember correctly, we don't know very much yeah. about what they're producing. So it doesn't surprise me that there's not a lot of details. But once again, there is some information about the fact that early pregnancy and late pregnancy uterine milk is different in its components, containing increasing amounts of lipids throughout pregnancy. So that is a very common feature in a lot of these, that mm -hmm. you change the nutritional value of the milk you're providing to match whatever step the young are at and what they're needing. Another example that I wasn't familiar with is called crop milk from birds. Yeah, I have heard of this. I'm not very familiar with it. I think I had heard of it, but I hadn't connected that it was different from birds regurgitating food. Because mm. birds have a crop. This is a section of the esophagus, their throat, that is enlarged. It can be notably enlarged. It can also be fairly simple in certain species. It's present in most, uh, especially your omnivorous and herbivorous birds. And it plays an important role in storing food, moistening food, and is where the food is stored before it is regurgitated back up for young very often. But in many groups of birds, the crop can produce something called crop milk. It is a secretion that is nutritious and fed directly to the young to boost their nutritional intake. This is found in pigeons very famously. They're by far the one most studied for it. Flamingos also do mm. it. It has been noted that emperor penguins do it as well, but theirs has to be synthesized differently because they don't actually have a crop. So it's still coming from the esophagus, but it's not coming from a specialized crop area. So it's not always called crop milk because they don't actually have a crop. And at least in pigeons, both males and females will produce it for the young. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. The crop milk consists of some familiar components. Lots of proteins, about 50 to 60% of it is protein. Fats can make up 30 to 40%. And then just like 1 to 3% of it is carbohydrates. Mm. Proteins, fats, and sugars. Yep. If it sounds familiar, <laughs> this is milk, basically. That's milk. It also can be mixed with the food they've collected in their crop to make a, a semi-solid food. Yeah. That's incorporating. A slurry, uh, yeah. if you will. Exactly. So that it's kind of a booster, it seems, almost. That, yeah. like, I'm going to go catch a protein food. shake. Yeah. And I'm going to feed you that food, but I'm going to add a little bit of my own, my own uh, special flavoring to it. Right. These have been found, once again, like the uterine milk, to be extremely nutritious and high energy. A lot of nestlings in these groups that use crop milk grow very fast, have shorter nest periods, you know, uh, developmental periods. And it has been noted that it will also contain immune components like mammal milk. So a bunch of different milks from a bunch of different vertebrates very, it's fairly common almost that we find some kind of, you know, provisioning from the parent's body. And to me, a lot of those seem reasonable because we haven't even gotten to the invertebrate examples mm. that also do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all those vertebrate examples, it's interesting because on the one hand, not at all surprising. Mm -hmm. 
that this is something that has evolved alongside parental care, especially in things like birds. Yes. Not at all surprising that birds have come up with something like this to assist with caring for the young and helping the young to grow. It also, as we discussed before the break, makes it easier to intuit an evolutionary pathway for true milk. Yes. That this isn't a one-of-a-kind weird thing that only mammals are doing. Mammals have their version of it. Yeah, and that's why it's actually named after mammary glands, not milk. (laughs) Right. But mammals are doing a very specialized version of something that actually is seen in a whole bunch of vertebrates. And the fact that we see it in fish and we see it in amphibians makes it seem very likely that mammals could have been co-opting something that parent animals have been doing for hundreds of millions of years, even before mammals showed up. Exactly. And this seemingly applies to a lot of invertebrates as well, that they have come to very similar evolutionary answers to how do you nourish young other than just what's in the egg. Probably the most famous example is the tsetse fly that feed a larva that they keep inside a brood pouch or brood sack that then they give birth to a already hatched larva. They are actually in a group of flies, the hippoboscoidae, which many of them actually give birth to their youngs in a similar fashion, all of which are blood-sucking flies. So this whole group sucks blood and then broods a live larva. There are also cockroaches that do this. Uh, So it's not just these flies. It has actually come up multiple times in different groups of insects, both nourishing a, I think, typically single offspring in both in the brood sac, producing very similar stuff to uterine milk. It's not always called that since they do not have a vertebrate uterus the way we would call it, but very similar. It's produced from the inside surfaces of the brood sac. A lot of times you will see that these have eggs with very sparse yolks. Uh, So there's not a lot of nutrition coming to the young other than this milk that the, the, that the parent is producing. Mm. In the cockroach, it was noted that the yolk is basically used up just so the young can produce a very simple gut to then start digesting and feeding on this liquid. Interesting. This is a side note, but I think that it really does show our vertebrate bias that vertebrate young are carried in a womb or a uterus and invertebrate young are carried in a brood sack. Oh, yeah. I had the same <laughs> thought. And I'm like, what is this? Is the whole atmosphere has shifted. Oh, yeah. All the terminology has shifted now that we're talking about bugs. We do find some interesting analogs and interesting side effects of this. Uh, one being that, like, female tsetse flies probably only have 8 to 10 young throughout their life because they're doing it one at a time instead of the large clutches of eggs that we see in so many other flies. They do go through periods of production and dry periods where they are producing milk and not producing milk like we see in like many mammals do yep so they are following patterns that we would compare to mammals there are some similar proteins like proteins at least that seem to be doing similar kinds of jobs Mm -hmm. there are some called lipocalins that are a class of protein that's conserved in mammalian milk in tsetse fly milk But in this case, it's likely key for transporting hydrophobic molecules, doing some hydrophobic job. There are even some proteins in tsetse fly milk that seem similar to caseins. So even some of the big deal proteins in mammal milk, probably not doing the same job exactly. 
because they are likely still transporting amino acids and phosphate, likely not calcium, since insects have a chitin base. They, they, don't need, they don't need to grow big, strong bones. Nope. So they're not doing all the same jobs, but there are definitely some parallels between the things being transmitted by some of their proteins and caseins found in milk. The biggest difference is that they don't have any sugar, it seems. Hmm. Their milk lacks sugar, uh, which does make it stand out from a lot of the other ones we've discussed. But it does transport bacterial symbionts. So it also contributes to the Young's microbiome. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Another one I found that is by far the most hardcore example on this list is a nematode, Canorhabditis elegans, that has a very interesting reproductive cycle. It experiences what we call reproductive death in that upon giving birth, it also reaches the end of its life and that we see some major changes in the body as it is nearing that reproductive death. This is commonly seen in things famously like octopus, uh, salmon also go through the same sort of process of their body shifts so that they can get ready for reproduction. But those shifts are a one-way street. Right. And it's essentially fatal for the animal. Exactly. Theirs, though, is super extreme. One of the big shifts that happens right after reproduction, they start producing yolk by converting their intestines into yolk. And then, after the young have been born, after that yolk's been produced, the nematode will vent the yolk from their body where it can now be consumed by the young as the parent dies. And they described it as a form of self-destructive lactation. Huh. That they turned part of their body into a nutrient source and then produced it to the already born young, mm -hmm. but it, it's fatal. And then that's it. Yeah. yeah. Here are my organs that I have turned into a snack for you. I'm going to go lay down. Yep. <laughs> you have a lovely life. And so it's been compared to milk since they are producing this and then giving it to already born young. Fascinating. But it is... But extreme. It is part of their death process. Yeah. And then the final example I have, not quite as extreme as that, but startlingly familiar is in a jumping spider species. I figured it was spiders. Mm -hmm. Toxius magnus is a ant-mimicking jumping spider that already was noted for having a slightly unusual brooding strategy in that the females will make breeding nests and... The brood sack. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> that will either have several large individuals, like two or more adults, or one female and then a bunch of juveniles, which is unusual for non-colonial spiders. Mm -hmm. There are other spiders that live together and this would be more common this is not one of those spiders but they still group in those breeding nests and while they were observing this they noted some interesting patterns the young the spiderlings seemed to not leave the nest until they were subadults but were increasing in size all that time so they weren't coming out to forage they were eating something but they were growing and this period was not short they would be in the breeding nest for up to 20 days. So up until they were fully mature spiders. So it wasn't even like as soon as they could up until they were done, basically. And they noted that the mother never seemed to go out to get food to bring back to the nest. 
No one was going out to get food, but the young were growing. Uh, this is a closed system. Yes. So they suspected that some sort of parental care and nourishing, you know, nourishment provide, provision was happening. And sure enough, when they looked closer, they found that the female spiders will produce a milk-like substance from a portion on the underside of their abdomen, their big back part, called the epigastric furrow, which is a fold in the abdomen and is where spiders produce their eggs from. And as they documented this process, they noted that not only does the female produce this milk, but that the relationship between parent and offspring is incredibly complex. During the first week, the female produces milk and deposits it on the nest's internal surface, on the webbing, and then the spiralings suck up those droplets. Hmm. Then after that first week, the female stops depositing the milk, and the young suckle straight from the mother. Take from the, milk. the underside yep. of the body, and which is another very familiar posture. The spiralings would start to forage after 20 days, but still were getting milk when they came back. So the milk production did not stop until they hit about sub-adult age, not quite 40 days after they had been born. After those 40 days, milk stopped, but the spiralings would still come back and use the nest. Now, notably, only the female young would be able to come back. Males would be chased off, likely to stop interbreeding and, sure. and force them to go find other genetic populations, which is very common among animals. All during that time, the female spider maintains the nest and removes the shed skins of the young. Whoa. Like, this is high, high levels of parental care in a spider. Yeah. Listen, the spider, uh, the economy for the spiders has been really rough recently, <laughs> so more and more spiders are staying in the yep, nest. Yep. <laughs> and then mom has to still feeding them and taking care of them. They, they were able to prove that, indeed, the young rely solely on the female's milk when they blocked the furrow on a female spider, and the young died within 10 days. Oops. So, like, that is fully what is feeding them. Yeah. They suspect this likely evolved from trophic eggs of females producing eggs for the young to eat, since that also comes from this furrow. Right. And that... It Every now and then they would be out of eggs. Yes. So uh, here's some fluids that I have yeah. left over, I guess. Eventually specialized <laughs> into this milk. And the original researchers, and it's been contested for this claim, but they described it as the most similar to mammalian milk, not only found in invertebrates, but found anywhere else. Yeah. That no other group of animals has come as close to mammals in their production of milk. Yeah, and in that dedicated, specialized way of using it to nourish young for an mm. extended period of time. Spider milk. Yeah. That's exceptional. That's actually the immunoglobulin's weakness. Yes, yes. Spider milk. That's how <laughs> he gets defeated. Spider milk. Someone give me fan art. I want fan art of spider milk on my desk. Monday. <laughs> it's, it comes out of the wrists. It looks very silly. Like in the comics, it's it's drawn very similar. Please, someone. It's just streams of fluid. I need spider milk. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. That is very cool. It is, it is one of the most complex forms found in a spider. So milk-producing animals are all over, which kind of leaves one big question that I came across that I don't know that most people ever ask. Why do male mammals not produce milk? Oh, yeah. Like, it's the question gets asked of all the times of why do male mammals have nipples if sure. they're not producing milk. But take that question a step back. 
Why aren't they? Right, why aren't they using it? Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, I think you mentioned it with the fish or one of it your the, examples. the crop milk with the birds. That's it. Yeah, the crop yeah. milk where both male and female parents are producing it. Yes. Why would it not be beneficial for both parents to be able to nourish the young? And we aren't sure. Hmm. This is kind of a, a evolutionary conundrum as to why we don't typically see male m- male mammals mm-hmm. producing milk. There are some suggestions as to why it hasn't evolved or why it may have been selected against. One being that typically in mammals, females bear the brunt of the responsibility and cost of raising the young. Right. Not only did they have to gestate, but they also are the ones most commonly raising the young afterward. Yeah, caring for the den, raising the young, things like that. And in some cases, the males don't even stick around. Oh, yeah. Uh, the males are just gone. They're not actually interacting with the young. I saw uh, on this, the paper discussing this gave a statistic that direct male care is found in less than 10% of mammal species. Right. But less than 10% is still a bunch of mammals, uh, hundreds of mammal species. And even in that 10%, it's still usually disproportionate with the male mm-hmm. not doing as much as the female. But it, there are some examples of extremely dedicated male parents in the mammals. Yeah. So why haven't we seen them take on lactation as part of that care? Yeah. One answer for why things are imbalanced might just be the fact that the males can leave, as you mentioned. Like, they they aren't responsible for gestating, so they have the opportunity to uh, leave and therefore not be around when the young are born, which the females don't have that option for. So Mm -hmm. that may have just been a selection pressure that allowed male mammals to not form as dedicated a child-rearing role. It could also be due to issues of not knowing for sure that those are indeed your young. Oh, yeah. That that is a common thing Mm -hmm. that we see show up with reproductive habits in mammals. Uh, One of the most famous examples uh, is lions. Yes. Where a lion will come in and take over a pride and kill all the other babies. There are a whole lot of instinctual things within mammals in particular Things that mammals either do or in some cases don't do Mm -hmm. to prioritize putting energy towards raising their own direct offspring and not the offspring that some other male uh, produced that they now are in association with. Because then they might be using their own energy and and resources to promote genetics that don't actually belong to them. Right. Which evolution is not about. Yes. And in this case, the female mammals are definitely related to those young. Those are your your babies. Mm -hmm. The males may not be, and that may have been enough of a non-selective force to not push them toward as dedicated parental care. Yeah. In those examples where we do see higher male involvement, though, it is much harder to answer why they haven't developed male lactation. It is not likely that they can't, because we have examples of lactation in male mammals. Mm Mm-hmm. It is most often documented in medical situations where it is something caused it to happen in a situation where it usually wouldn't. Right. So some imbalance or some mm-hmm. unusual circumstance in the body allowed that production. There's a, a famous example of prisoners of war in World War II that were malnourished. And when they got the nourishment they had been lacking, their liver had not yet caught up to the new influx of hormones that were being produced. And they started to lactate. Hmm. Things like that have happened. 
The pituitary gland can produce things like prolactin and are typically inhibited by the hypothalamus, but tumors on the pituitary gland can shift the production and cause lactation to occur. There was also a note that in certain, in some sheep, male lactation was noted because of what they were eating. The plants they were eating had an estrogen-like compound that was causing their bodies to trigger those lactation processes. Interesting. So there are examples. They're not common. It's it's possible for male mammals to produce milk in certain circumstances. Physiologically, there's not actually anything fundamentally stopping male mammals from being able to produce milk. So one of the questions has come into, okay, so what would promote that? You know, what is missing? And the paper I found listed a couple of things that might promote it. First, you need males to start participating in more parental care. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would provide that selective pressure. For them to be around and be involved with the young. Certainty of parentage, you know, mm-hmm. knowing they're the parents, which could be due to strict monogamy or uh, something similar that they are more likely to be the parents of those young. Right. Stronger pair bonding. Yeah. Things like that. That could increase the likeliness and the selective pressures to dedicate care to those young. One thing that was noted is things like male-to-male competition is something that will often select for traits that are influenced by androgen, and so traits that would actually contradict lactation. So if you can reduce stuff like that, there's less competition, less behaviors that are promoting the selection for those hormones might make it more likely for this to happen. High in-group relatedness, so that you might get more altruism being evolved of we're all a little bit more related so helping each other out is not as costly even if you're not even if you aren't my young eh, we are a closely related family group that that is still worth dedicating that care the reason these things are notable is because most of those cases of like of male lactation were not actually nourishing any young they were not adaptive. They weren't helping. They just happened. Right. So these are questions of what would it take for males to produce lactation for yeah. the actual purpose of uh, supplying nutrients to young. And that in a circumstance like that, you could end up with a population or a group of species that evolve. Basically, you get the a group of mammals that are the seahorses of mammals. Yes. Yeah. Where males have taken on a surprising amount of that parental care down to the physiology of actually producing nourishment. And this, one of the reasons this may not have happened could just be that only having females lactate is enough. That that it's not actually needed for both parents. Right. There's not a strong yeah. detriment to that in evolutionary terms. So maybe having a situation where nutrients aren't as available and mm. both parents participating is more beneficial or more necessary to the survival of young or the successful survival of a a litter or group of young. So far, we don't have any for sure documented cases of this kind of behavior in mammals. There are some lactating male mammals in fruit bats. Hmm. A couple of species have been noted it. It's still not yet determined whether they are nourishing young yet. This is a fairly recent discovery. The Dayak fruit bats in Malaysia and the masked flying fox in Papua New Guinea Both have been documented male lactation, both producing less than females and had reduced nipples. So they still aren't producing it in equivalency with females, but they are producing 
semi-regularly, it seems. They don't know whether they have a cycle of dry and milk-producing periods like we would expect to see in most milk-producing mammals. And they've yet to see a male nourishing an offspring, so we don't know that it has evolved for that purpose yet. And they haven't yet ruled out that like their diet of plants might not have those estrogen-like compounds in it. But this could potentially be an example. And one of the things they want to look into is how many of those categories do these bats fit into? You know, do they line up with what was predicted? So this is still something that's being investigated and still a bit of a mystery as to why mammals have balanced things or imbalanced things the way they have. And with that, we can stop talking about milk. Uh, there's tons of other examples for stuff similar and unique features of different groups in the way they handle milk or produce it or deliver it to their young. So if there's a if you have a favorite example that you like or wanted to hear, yeah, either mammal milk or other stuff milk. Yes. Yep. Let us know. You can get in contact with us all the usual ways. Links down in the description. Before we wrap up this episode, our last section is our patron question. Every episode we like to answer a question from one of our patrons. If you sign up for Patreon at certain levels, you can submit questions to us that we'll answer here on the podcast. And today's patron question is... This episode's question is from Julia, who asks... This is a personal question. Who asks, what are a few of your personal favorite episodes from the Common Descent archives that people might overlook? Or could you mention a few episode topics that turned out to be way more fascinating and surprising than you expected? Yeah... Uh, I absolutely have some favorites. And as far as like things that turned out to be more fascinating topics like this one mm -hmm. that very much fall into that category for me. So things like milk, the moon yeah, was one of those sleep, for me. I know you sleep. were very excited about. And like I was excited for those going in because I knew I was going to learn a lot and I was already interested. But those all ended up being really, really interesting and leading to levels and depth of discussion that I wouldn't have necessarily expected them to. Yeah, I had a similar experience with the recent Sicilians episode yep, yep, yep. where I went in going, Sicilians are super cool and weird and I can't wait. And then I learned that they were even cooler and weirder than I had realized. Uh, as far as episodes, favorites that people might overlook, I, I think there are a bunch that I'll think back on. Mm -hmm. Like episodes 10 and 12, the Tree of Life and Geologic Timescale, were the first time that we tackled foundational concepts in paleontological science. And I remember being really excited about those. I assume they get overlooked because they're early episodes and who wants to listen to early episodes? I could be wrong about that. Right. <laughs> I think there's, there's been a lot of guest episodes. And since guest episodes are sometimes on slightly different topics than the usual, those are episodes that often end up being fun and potentially overlooked by people. Like our Darwin Day episodes where we talk about historic figures. Episode 19 with Michelle, Women mm -hmm. in Paleontology. Super great discussion from way back in the early days. There's a bunch of those really cool ones that are topics slightly off, like this episode yeah. or sleep, that may get overlooked by people, I suppose. Yeah, and it's, uh, thus far, we don't have like a, a list of episodes that have just utterly flopped you know like that just got almost no downloads for some reason uh so there's not like any ones that i can point to and be like yeah i don't know yeah, why isn't anyone listening yeah. to this one 
our side series will will get notably fewer downloads. So yeah, spooky which, and which makes sense. Which makes sense. It's not the main series. It is a different topic. It is a different kind of episode. Uh, but every now and then with that, I'll have moments of like, oh, but come on. Like, <laughs> that one was really fun. Go more people. More people go listen to that one. I, every now and then I find myself thinking back to episode 49, which was Fake Fossils. Yeah. Which was another odd episode, but I had a whole lot of fun. It was mostly talking about historical examples. So yeah, episode, those are some examples that come to mind. One of my favorite things, noting of like things that end up being more interesting than we expected is I like when I stumble upon a really good theme for an episode Mm. that I didn't plan for when I was outlining it initially, you know, like when I picked the topic, because a lot of times when we pick a topic, it's like, all right, I have an idea of kind of what we'll be covering here. I take the notes and yep, that's the case. But then other times I'll be taking notes. And I'll have a motto of, oh, actually, there's this theme running throughout a lot of the stuff I'm planning to say. And that's that's a really interesting theme. My I, the best one I can think of for that is the moon, where it's like I had not planned with the takeaway message to be the fact that you cannot separate any system on Earth from the fact that we are a planet with a moon. Yes. That That wasn't my plan. Episode 138. Yeah. That like, I didn't go into that episode being like, ah, that's the point I want to make with this. It's just, as I was doing the episode, I was like, you know what? Again, once again, (laughs) just remember, you can't forget the moons there because it even affects the, and also to come to think of it. And then that became the big takeaway message from that episode. I like when that happens. When I discover a, a new way to think about the topic we're doing an episode on. Yeah. Uh, I'll turn this back around. Dear listeners, what are episodes that you found to be surprisingly interesting or more fascinating than you would have expected that we've talked about on the podcast? Uh, Do you have any favorite episodes that we don't reference? I wonder that all the time. Oh, yeah. Have we overlooked an episode? Because there's definitely episodes we reference back to more than others. Oh, sure. Uh, Partially just because it's either we talk about that topic more or we remember that episode better. Yeah. So we can reference it easier. I wonder if there's anywhere it's like, you never talk about my yeah, favorite episode. You never mentioned my favorite one. Like, have you not gotten to hear the number thrown out? <laughs> so what is your the favorite number episode? that you keep waiting to hear and you never hear me say yes. it? <laughs> so thank you, Julia, for that question. That was, that was fun. And thank you all who suggested and requested this topic. Thank you to our new patrons. We can now start wrapping up the episode. And indeed, uh, getting started wrapping up Snake Month. It is. Yeah, we are getting... This is the last main episode of Snake Month. As a reminder, if it is still July, there is still time to hop in the Discord and join the Snake Stuff discussion. You can still listen to our bonus episodes from last month and this month where we talk about Crocs and Snakes. And there is still time to join the Snakes and Crocs tier on Patreon, where your subscription will support us in addition to supporting research and conservation for snakes and crocs. Yeah. We have had a great couple of months for Croc and Snake Month this year. They've been a lot of fun. And the response from people and the engagement from our audience has been really cool. So check out that stuff. Get on Discord. Let us know how you've been enjoying Croc and Snake Months. Yes, and as usual, if you have suggestions or requests for episode topics, let us know. Yeah. Until then... We release episodes every fortnight, and we release Croc and Snake Months every year. So yeah, Roughly every 11 months. <laughs> so check back in then if that's why you're... If you're only here for Croc and Snake Month, we'll see you, that's why we'll I'm see you next, next summer. That's the only part that I care about. <laughs> so yeah. Check out the blog post for additional links and images and more information about us on the website. 
I'll to, be say to you between episodes. I'll be keeping an eye on uh, our email inbox for all the fan art of Spider Milk that we'll be getting. Yes, Spider Milk fights the immunoglobulin and the yes. immunoglobulin. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a three way that actually because immunoglobulin, as we established, is an antihero. So all three of them. Imagine oh. if you will, oh. all three of them standing in a roughly triangular pattern, pointing at each other. Yes, Kason could be Craven. All right, I'll have more cases. And he'll, oh, and he'll get a nonsense movie. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yes, stay tuned for Sony's live-action take on the lactoglobulin. Uh, it's going to be disappointing. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.